wonderful Wizard of Oz with you. He is the Wizard of Wins, if ever a Wins there was. If ever a Wizard of Wins there was, the Wizard of Oz is one because, 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 Oh, I don't think I've ever watched the first 10 minutes of this movie, like since I was forming memories. Yeah, I do remember that the last time that I watched it, I was like, wait, there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens before they get to Oz, like a lot of stuff. Yeah. So I wasn't surprised this time, but I think that that is definitely a thing that I guess most children do, or maybe there was like... A weird TNT edit. Yeah, I don't know, because Nikki was saying the same thing. My wife watched it all the time with her significantly younger brother when he was very young. And so she kind of didn't really feel like watching it again with me this week, but was like, all the Kansas stuff is boring. And I'm like, no, actually, all the Kansas stuff like sets up everything in Oz. And I kind of had never... I'd always remembered the very end of the film as being super weird when they come back and everyone's, and it still kind of is kind of weird. Like, why is Professor Marvel leaning into her window and why is everyone okay with that? He was just coming in to check on her and the window got blown out in the tornado. So, you know. Sure. I mean, it's not like completely irrational, but it is kind of strange that like, everyone is there leaning over her bed so that you can go, remember, these are all the same faces from Oz. Yeah, I mean, that's why. Right. (laughs) I remembered that feeling kind of like sloppy and weird in this thing that was kind of done last minute and not like set up at length in the first 10 minutes of the film um, where like the actor who will eventually play Cowardly Lion is talking about her being a coward. Yeah, but then when it comes time for him to deal with the pigs, he gets freaked out. Right, and someone suggests spitting in the eye of the woman who will become the Wicked Witch, and like the entire film is set up in the first five minutes. Right. We can do the plot really fairly quickly. Dorothy is a sweet little girl that lives in Kansas, with her significantly radder dog, because he's the raddest dog that ever lived, named Toto. He's such a rad dog. He always makes the right decision. Including biting their neighbor. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. Miss Almira Gulch, who has just a great, just evil person name. She's going to try and take Toto to the sheriff to euthanize him, but Toto goes on the lamb and immediately runs back to the house, because Toto rules. Yes. Dorothy decides to run away, so Toto will be safe. And runs into a fortune teller and kind of flim-flam man, but he's got a good enough heart that he sends Dorothy back to her family and her Auntie M. By telling her that Auntie M is basically having a heart attack because she's sad that Dorothy ran away. Yeah, which is just great chaotic good energy from Professor Marvel. 
So Dorothy heads back, then we get the tornado that you may have heard about from this film. Dorothy tries to get reunited with her family, ends up running back to her room, where she is briefly knocked out, or knocked out for a long time, depending on how you interpret the film. Then she sees a bunch of stuff in the tornado and wakes up in full Technicolor. Which is so impressive. And I think that I just took it for granted when I was a kid because it was like, oh, yeah, this is what the Wizard of Oz is. But the shot where she opens the door and she's still in sepia tone and you can see the inside of the house and it's still in sepia, but everything through the doorway is in color And the sound editing is incredible because it's completely dead quiet. And then she opens the door and there's all this really beautiful score that swells up. I was like, holy shit, this is genius. This must have been mind-blowing to people in 1939. Yeah. We've started doing these film festivals on the weekend, like every month or two at our place. And so I was re-watching Forbidden Planet a couple of weeks ago. And Forbidden Planet also does the, like hand-drawn animation over live action that this movie occasionally does. It's how they do Glinda the Good Witch. Right. It's such a cool effect, and I know we don't do it because it's ridiculously expensive and doesn't look very good, but it looks not very good in such a cool way, and I love it so much. And, like, all of the special effects in this movie have that same, like, oh, we can do this better, but in doing it better... I don't know if I would like it as much. It's almost less magical. There was literally only one special effect, which we'll get to, that to me was like chintzy. Yeah. And all the rest, I was like, this is actually better than CGI. Yeah. Just the whole door opening sequence to the, honestly, to the moment where you realize, oh, right, now we have to deal with munchkins for 15 minutes, which is kind of complicated, is just like this huge sweeping shot over this set where you're like, now I know in my head, this set is not that impressive. It's a lot of matte painting. Right. It's a lot of matte painting. It's a lot of very clearly plastic objects. Like intellectually, I know that this isn't the most amazing thing I've ever seen. But holy shit, if this isn't the most amazing thing I've ever seen. Like just this huge sweeping shot of this set is amazing. It still, though, has to be pretty large to accommodate the 200 munchkins that are there. Oh, sure. It's like a football field-sized set or something. Yeah. Probably not quite that big, but it's quite large. It isn't like a stage. It's like a fucking, holy shit, this stage is huge stage, if it is. It is a full sound stage. obviously. It isn't the kind of shit we can do with virtual sets now where you just have stuff go on forever it isn't really cheating the angles you can very clearly see where the edges of the set are it gives the sense of being a set still very clearly but it is still a really remarkable shot and scene and then we get to the plot which is where i start to feel slightly more ambivalent about this movie i still very much like you know what's really weird about the munchkins is that so many things? I mean, yeah, yeah, there's that. The vast majority of the munchkins are actually children in old makeup, yeah, which I didn't realize until I watched it this time. And I was really looking because I was like, did they hire a lot of small adults or did they just have kids play adult munchkins? It is a mix, but most of the prominent munchkins are actually kids, yeah, and it's. 
just kind of a weird sequence. I don't know enough to really go into it, but it's just, like, it just kind of gives off this vibe of, I don't know if I need this in my life. And <laughs> Glinda the Good Witch arrives and establishes that Dorothy's house has fallen on the Wicked Witch of the East, which by rights means she gets all the her magical possessions, because Oz has very strange laws. Yes, but the Munchkins have been liberated from their evil dictator, which is strange to me, because, like, why doesn't the Wicked Witch of the West just come in and be like, well, now I'm your evil dictator, but whatever. Right, it's, like, established that, like, they have zones of control. I kind of wish they played that up. It's one of the things I do kind of like about the books over the movie, and I hate doing that generally. But I do like the idea that, like, the rules of Oz are, in the books, much more clearly kind of, like... Adults talking on the peanuts, you know, that like it's not supposed to make sense because Dorothy's still a kid. And so adult logic just feels like you have no power here. You're the witch of the West. Oh, look, the shoes are magically on her feet. And here it seems a little bit like we're trying to get to the song and dance number. It's kind of my least favorite song and dance number, which is the whole Munchkinland song. But then we're off to see the wizard and... No one likes the Munchkinland song. Yeah. I mean, I have to say that the Munchkin scene actually felt more interesting and less irritating to me when I was really focused on it, because I've really, really focused on this watch because the opposite possibility is that I'm like, well, I've seen this movie. I know what it's about, whatever. So I like really lasered in on it. And it does become less grating the more that you're really looking at the details because the art direction for this movie, and I think I have this like seven times in my notes, is, oh my god, the art direction. And even though the munchkins themselves are kind of irritating, the way that everything is shot with these incredible like dolly tracking shots and all of the houses and everything that have flowers growing off of their roofs and whatever is really really impressive a thing i have in my notes is that's the exact right angle for dorothy's house to have fallen at that that like i don't know how yeah that's true it didn't crush any of the other no no, i mean like 55 houses i mean art direction wise oh yeah that too that like 17 degrees yes exactly that's the exact (laughs) number of degrees it should be off kilter yes everything is so art directed and so controlled that even the stuff that is very clearly kind of fake and kind of set like looks like well yes it does look fake and set like but it has to be that way It's so intentional that it becomes a piece of art. And it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, art is also fake and not real, and that's okay. You did leave out, though, before we're off to see the wizard, that the Wicked Witch of the West shows up to try to get the ruby slippers from her dead sister, but now they're on Dorothy's feet. Yes, sorry. I mentioned that, but I mentioned that in a way that it might have been me just spitballing and not actually talking about the plot of the film. Indeed, in the plot of the film, Dorothy does actually have the ruby slippers on now. The one part of Wicked that does check out, which is that Glinda seems like a real piece of shit, has happened. (laughs) Glinda just seems like an asshole in this movie. But she then gives Dorothy the quest of going to see the Wizard of Oz so that she can go home. And Dorothy heads down the yellow brick road and meets the Scarecrow in a pretty good scene, the Tin Man in a great scene, and the Cowardly Lion in yet another scene where Toto rules. Yes. Then 
with the full party assembled and all of their quests to go home, to get a brain, to get a heart, to get courage established, they arrive at the Emerald City. The witch has done a couple of vague witch things, but mostly we've just established that, like, the art direction for her evil empire is amazing. Yes. Then we get to the Emerald City, where the art direction is also amazing. The art direction for the Emerald City is absolutely out of control. The costume design, that there's, like, 200 people who live in Emerald City, and there's multiple different costumes that are all in green, but that indicate what everyone's role is. And I think there's... one shot i counted that there were like 10 or 12 different costumes and then we go on to the part where everybody's getting spruced up and then everybody has a different costume depending on what their job is and how they're sprucing somebody up i mean the money that they must have spent on this movie the whole horse of a different color sequence which is some great hand-drawn it's not even animation it's just they drew over it right they just hand color the horse yeah That's kind of the effect I was thinking of, of just like, God, I love the movie Pleasant Phil. That's such a good movie. (laughs) But they go and see the wizard. I felt like that was one of the things I was going to be underwhelmed by this time, because we all know the bit with the wizard, because we've seen this movie before, and we know, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. But like, damned if when there's the giant floating head with real flames shooting out, you're not like, oh shit, the wizard's here. (laughs) (laughs) Even knowing it's fake, you're like, this is, again, a really great effect. Yeah, well, and the whole incredible art deco green chamber setting, it's just incredible. I really felt like if I were in their shoes, I would be unbelievably intimidated. (laughs) Right. I would be the cowardly lion who'd be like, nope, I'm out. Bye. (laughs) Who straight up faints. I was really impressed they showed the restraint to wait that long. For the cowardly lion to straight up just faint dead on his feet. (laughs) Yep. But then they are given the mission in order to get all of their quest goals to go defeat the Wicked Witch of the West. The Wicked Witch of the West then immediately captures Dorothy, but Toto manages to escape because, again, Toto is the protagonist of this film. Toto and the Tin Man and the Cowardly Lion and Scarecrow all manage to sneak into the witch's castle and come to rescue Dorothy, but they all get caught at the very last minute, and the witch starts monologuing, basically, and sets the Scarecrow on fire, at which point Dorothy picks up a bucket of water to save him and accidentally does a big murder. (laughs) By throwing water on the Wicked Witch. Dorothy is really good at accidentally doing a big murder when it comes to Wicked Witches of Oz. Yes, that's ki- that is kind of her whole bit. It, yeah, it's, it's her jam. Yeah, she just kind of man who knew too littles her way into destroying all evil in Oz. Basically, yeah. Anyway, they then go like, oh, I guess we did it, and go back to the Emerald City, and the wizard starts stalling, because clearly... In a thing that they get past very quickly, his plan was for them to go get themselves killed and not succeed in this quest. Then he wouldn't have to do anything. But Toto, again, our hero, pulls back the curtain on the side of the room and reveals that there's a middle-aged man operating all the machinery that makes the wizard run. And he looks remarkably like 
Professor Marvel. Even more so than the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, and the Cowardly Lion look like the farmhands from Kansas. Right. Because he's just a dude. And he admits that he is just a dude, in fact, that he was in a hot air balloon and crash landed in the Emerald City. And they were like, I guess you're magic because anyone who comes from the sky is magic. Those are the rules of Oz. And put him in charge. And he gives, in a very complicated scene, the Scarecrow, because he can't actually physically give him a brain, he gives him a diploma. He gives the lion a medal for his bravery, so that he has bravery. And he gives the Tin Man another medal, but this one's a heart-shaped watch. And that solves all their problems, question mark? It does. Well, because they had it inside them all along. They just needed recognition. Sure. That's the message. Yes. Anyway, then he offers to take Dorothy home in a hot air balloon, but Toto has figured out that Dorothy has not learned her elaborate lesson yet, and so jumps out to go- No, that's not why. There's someone in the audience with a cat. No, but Toto is a genius and therefore knew that Dorothy didn't learn her elaborate lesson and still had more to learn from Oz, and so he jumps out of the hot air balloon to go chase after a cat as part of an elaborate game that Toto is playing because he is the chess master of this film. (laughs) All right, all right, I'll give that to you. (laughs) Dorothy follows him and misses her hot air balloon ride home, but luckily Glinda shows up and reveals that she could have gone home from minute one if she just clicked her heels together three times, but Dorothy needed to go on this whole quest so that she would believe that she had that power inside of her. Which it seems like she might have just given it a try if Glenda told her that back in Munchkinland, but whatever. But she wouldn't have been able to do it. That's the thing. See, that's the thing that's always ambiguous to me, because it doesn't... Glinda doesn't ever say, like, it requires the power of belief. No, but she does say that she wouldn't be able to do it until she learned it herself. Okay. If Glinda had just been like, yeah, just click your heels together three times and say there's no place like home, then it wouldn't work for some reason because Dorothy hadn't figured it out on her own. It's the laws of magic. Yeah, okay. That's, I think, the thing that confuses me is because in Munchkinland, when she and the Wicked Witch of the West are talking about the, like, rules of magic, and you're like, the hell is going on here. The thing that seems to be implied is that there's an enchantment on the ruby slippers that stops people from talking about the rules of how the ruby slippers work. That they work like a fucking microwave oven. It's just you don't have the instruction manual and no one can tell you the instruction manual. But then Glinda just tells her the instruction manual at the end of the film. That's what I think confuses me, is that if it was like she had to discover for herself the rules of the slippers, I'd be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. But if it's like, I had to tell you at a time when you would believe me instead of before, when you would kind of do it begrudgingly, I'm like, I okay, okay. But like... A, Eh. I'm a stickler for this kind of stuff. This is my problem. The line that Dorothy says there, I rewound it like five times because it was really confusing to me. She says something to the effect of the lesson that she's learned is that if she ever goes looking for her heart's desire, she will look no further than her backyard. Quote, because if it isn't there, I never really lost it to begin with. End quote. Which 
doesn't make sense. No. I mean, like, this is where we get to the part where the, like, moral of the- I mean, it just literally doesn't make sense as far as, like, what the message is. Because if it isn't there, then I never really lost it. So you're saying that in the backyard is not where your heart's desire is? I don't understand. Again, this is where, like, the whole message of what the Wizard of Oz is supposed to be telling us- seems kind of wild because the just general metaphor of like of there being no place like home and you not really needing to go to a magical new world seems undermined by this magical new world and how it's rad as shit. Yeah. That like Dorothy's takeaway from all of this is that she had everything she ever needed to begin with seems kind of at odds with the entire rest of the movie, but is clearly what the movie is trying to say. I don't think the movie quite sticks the landing, but, like, it's literally the last two minutes of the movie and the rest of the movie's rad, so whatever. See, it also explains why my takeaway from the movie for the moral of it has never been there's no place like home, but has instead been the you had this within you all along and you just needed external validation. That is the Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion moral. Right. But it it's complicated. Um, And we can get into it after we say she clicks her heels together and goes home and just wakes up in her bedroom surrounded by all of her friends and Professor Marvel leaning in through the window and Toto, the most important dog in human history, um, all like gathered around her and all kind of dismiss it as a dream, but kind of go like, God, there's some truth in dreams. And she explicitly states that, yeah, there is a truth in dreams. And the truth I learned is that I'll never run away again because there's no place like home. And then the movie ends. Right. I mean, I understand that's the message that it's also giving. Right. It's just not the one that I've carried with me through my whole life after seeing this as a child. I didn't mean to mention that in that way as being like passive aggressively trying to prove I'm right. It's more just like, I don't like the end of this movie very much, specifically because that's how it ends. But that's fine. The movie is very good. I was thinking so much about how I thought that the process of this project was going to be just kind of watching film slowly build on itself over time. And like, that's not not there. Like, we can see how we got to 1939 from where we started. But it is remarkable to me when we hit ones like this, where it's like, where the fuck did this come from? Yeah, it's like an evolutionary step, you know? Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, there's a mutation, and we have a completely different beast. Right. How clean everything from Kansas maps onto Oz... The way that this manages to be a musical in a way that we really haven't seen a, like, Broadway musical yet. Like, we've seen literal Broadway musicals, but they don't really have that feeling of, like, this is all a connected story, and occasionally we break into song. And when we throw back to a song that we've done before, it has different lyrics, and there's a reason for it, instead of just, we want to play Broadway Melody 35 times. Right, exactly. It's not like this literally came from nowhere. I can see, you know, this isn't our first color film. This isn't our first film with musical numbers. But it does feel like, oh, you could just do this? 
Like, you you guys could have been just doing this. Well, but but they couldn't, because nobody had done it before. Right. But that, like, nothing was stopping them. It wasn't that it was physically impossible. Yeah, I mean, they could have done this as soon as there was Technicolor. Right. It is remarkable. Genuinely, there are parts of this that feel like magic in that they really shouldn't work, but they do. I think that's really what is so magical about the practical effects as opposed to CGI, is that you know that it's happening, but there's a suspension of disbelief that you credit it because it's not trying so hard to be realistic. You don't get that same uncanny valley feeling. Like, I have a note in here about the apple trees that yell at Dorothy for picking one of her apples and then throw apples at her. Groot, eat your heart out. Yeah. Because they look like faux rubber costumes, and yet they're so much more terrifying and (laughs) tree-like. I think it's this thing of everything's on the same level of unreality. Yes. Like it's in this consistent groove of being weird as shit. Yeah. I don't really have a problem with CGI. I think it's mixing CGI with realistic stuff where things hit a weird wall. If you just composite an entire shot, I'm like, sure, whatever. It doesn't really bug me that much. There are definitely movies that really successfully managed to do it. Like, we will get to it in about 10 years. But Mad Max Fury Road, I went into a deep dive about how much was practical effects and how much was CGI. A lot of the practical effects had additional CGI that was added, and it was very seamless. Did you ever read the thing where I think it was Soderbergh, and I'm trying to find it, and by trying to find it, I mean I earlier tried to find it, but was typing while talking, and Susan yelled at me. It's Soderbergh going, I just read watched Mad Max Fury Road again last week, and I tell you I couldn't direct 30 seconds of that. I'd put a gun in my mouth. I don't understand how George Miller does that. I really don't. And it's my job to understand it. I don't understand two things. I don't understand how they're not still shooting that film, and I don't understand how hundreds of people aren't dead. You know, I read all the, like, deep dive articles about making that movie, and I still don't understand those two things. Yeah. At all. Because they, like, set a lot of stuff on fire. (laughs) And this, I feel like, has, it's a much more minor version of that, and, like, the intervening, like, 60 years have helped out a lot. This, I feel like, has that same feeling of, like, why did this, how did this work? How did they do this? And it worked because you really can dig into almost any individual part of Oz and go like, well, now I know how they did that. And it looks it looks fake and it looks weird. Like the longer I look at the Cowardly Lion's tail, the weirder it is that they just had somebody following him around with fishing wire, waving his tail back and forth. But as a gestalt, the thing just fucking works. Right. It's undeniable. Oh, absolutely. I mean, someone did die making this movie, according to legend. Right. Well, there's, I mean, there's just so much according to legend about The Wizard of Oz. You can actually visibly see someone swinging from the, I don't know, the rafters, because it's in front of a matte painting, so it's not actually from a tree in one of the scenes. And I rewound it a lot because I was like, okay, but is that just like the bird in the background? And no, like it's definitely a human being swinging from a rope. Now, whether or not that person died or it was just a grip who got in the shot, I don't know. I feel like it's probably a grip that got in the shot. Yeah. I I mean, yeah. I've heard varying stories because like I've heard that a person committed suicide intentionally to mess up the shot 
I've heard someone fell and accidentally died and they were like, well, but the shot is really good. <laughs> that so many legends have grown up around this movie, I think actually is a testament to its staying power is that people still care about things like that. I think it's that. And I think it's a testament to this being a very early, like, how do you even do that movie? There are so many rumors about the making of this film. I think because everyone's instant response was, God, how did you make this film? Like the munchkins had their like weird cult thing that they were doing on set or like that there's a grip that died in the background. There's just so many things that are just like, you'd believe basically anything anybody told you about the making of this film, wouldn't you? Wow. What? that? Just that you would believe anything that anyone told you about the making of this film. Yeah, but people today still are interested in it. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, okay. But we, like, understand how to make movies now. Sure, but we understand how to make movies in that, like I say, there's no individual part of this where you're like, it's impossible to do that. But it does feel like, how did they do that and not mess it up? Which just seems like a different question. Yeah, So to talk about some of the things in this movie that are great. (laughs) Okay. Because we haven't done that yet. Or that like really stood out to me as being just phenomenal. That Judy Garland kid, I think I think she's really going to go far. Yeah, I see a long career ahead of her. She's got she's got some pipes on her. The way that she sings "Over the Rainbow," and I was really watching her face because there's not a lot because it's all sepia toned and she's just sort of like out in the farm. She's just so effortless. Her jaw is dropped. There's no strain, and this like incredible sound comes out of her mouth, and I'm just like, okay, that's not fair. And her acting is actually shockingly good and i know that there was some pushback about her casting and even in reviews about her being too old because dorothy in the book is like 10 but it's impossible for me to imagine anybody else and there are points where she cries like when she's captured by the witch and toto gets away and she says he got away he got away and she's crying but she's also happy at least at that and i was just like god this is really moving she just has so much pathos as an actor so when we were both like fairly young like the early 90s when there was that first run of cgi movies like really heavy cgi movies I remember there being all of these behind-the-scenes features where actors could just barely contain themselves from saying that working with CGI characters is the most irritating thing in the history of the fucking world. Liam Neeson quit acting for, like, years because of Star Wars. Because he hated acting opposite CGI. Right. But because of my childhood into adult crush on Christina Ricci, I remember I watched a lot of the -the behind-the-scenes specials of the terrible Casper movie from the early 90s that she was in. Yes. And that movie... Movie, almost all of the behind the scenes stuff was her and uh, uh, what's his name who plays the president in uh, Independence Day. Bill Pullman. Thank you. It's just her and Bill Pullman going like, I have to act against a tennis ball. This is hell. I hate this movie. I was thinking of that as I watched the scene where Dorothy is trapped in the castle and then they do the clearly composited effect 
of Auntie M and then the witch in the crystal ball. Right, yeah. She does such an incredible job acting against that tennis ball. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, it was so moving. Yeah. And I know what's going to happen. And I'm still genuinely like, oh, this poor girl. I know nothing's going to happen to her and she's going to get home. But I still was like, she's in so much pain. That's a thing that like, because all I really remembered was the plot outline of this movie. The experience of watching it again was this weird experience of feeling like I was going to get bored. Like, yeah, I know what happens next. Like, now we've seen the Tin Man, so now it's time to go get the Cowardly Lion. And, like, it was this process of being delighted by each consecutive scene in its execution, with the possible exception of If I Was King of the Forest. The only thing that still, as an adult, I'm a little bit, like, kind of stalling for time to get to 88 minutes, huh, guys? Well, so here was the other thing that jumped out to me that I had never noticed as a kid. So, like, obviously this movie is, and Judy Garland generally, and the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow are very important to the queer community. But, like, the Cowardly Lion is a queer icon. Oh, yeah. And If I Were King of the Forest is absolutely him, like, getting to just drag. And not, like, drag the movie. He, like, gets to do king drag. That's fair. I think it's that it's the only thing that doesn't feel propulsive in the whole film in the sense of it's moving us toward the next scene it feels kind of propulsive within itself it is fun within itself but like each scene i kept going into and going like oh now i know what happens in this scene then we just do this and it's whatever and then like the actual process of the scene is like oh shit the witch is here oh shit those monkeys are weird as hell oh everything is like Oh man, right, it's so exciting to get to the next scene from this scene. And I'd kind of forgotten that in the basic plot outline of fall on a witch, find your three friends, go to the city, get told to kill the witch, go kill the witch, come back, learn the power was inside you all along. And like, I kept kind of thinking like, oh, I know what happens from here, so whatever. And being surprised by how fun it was. Despite knowing what happens from here. Yeah, I actually wrote in my notes, there is not a boring scene in this movie. Yeah, no. And even If I Were King of the Forest, which is definitely, I mean, it's a scene that was written to have that song because you don't actually need to have a waiting room scene. It doesn't... Right, exactly. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay, he goes and talks to the wizard and then comes back and everything's fine and there's no real conflict. But there really is not a boring, overlong scene in the entire film. Everything moves at a clip, but it never feels rushed. It always feels very fleshed out. I mean, that more than anything to me was like, they could do this all along. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I think I bring up If I Was King of the Forest and some parts of the Munchkinland sequence only because they're the only moments that even feel like it could... Often something that is this much better will feel like it could fall apart at any moment. Mad Max Fury Road feels like it could fall apart at any moment. Or like a lot of people could die. (laughs) Right, yeah. This doesn't have that feeling. It has a couple of scenes where you're like, oh, that wasn't literally exactly how I would have done it. But that is very different from like, 
oh god, oh god, oh god, this Jenga tower's like gonna go. Right. Which is how the whole first hour of Mad Max Fury Road feels. The other thing that really jumped out to me in this watch is how incredible the makeup is. And I'd never noticed before, which is ridiculous, or I guess I just didn't remember, that the Tin Man is really rusty when they find him, and not just in the way that he moves. Like, his makeup is rusty, and, and his actual suit is rusty, and then they polish him up, and the difference is really, really striking. Also, the Scarecrow's makeup with the sack that's essentially a hood blends totally into his face. Yeah. It, it was amazing. The only one that's like a little bit overly weird is the Cowardly Lion. Yes. The Cowardly Lion is the one that is the most like a costume shop costume, where the other two kind of have this dream logic to them that works for them. Right. In order to not hate film, I've gotten really into film as we do this podcast. Oh, wow. Well, maybe that's what I've been missing. <laughs> um, so I've also been, because a film podcast I listen to called Blank Check has been going through all the Miyazaki movies, very recently rewatched Spirited Away, which has quite a few things conceptually and visually to do with this film, and is also one of the best films ever made. Oh god, it's so good. But there is this very specific unreality and dream logic to how things work in that film. That I think this movie has going for it in its best moments of like, the winged monkeys don't really look like anything. They don't like- (laughs) I mean, they look like something out of a nightmare. They're still really scary to me, but no, I've never seen a monkey that's like slate blue and their faces never move, which is actually what's the most terrifying thing to me about them. For sure. That's what I'm saying about the dream logic. This movie picks the right things to decide are important details, but they aren't the things you would think would be the important details. And there's been so many like remakes of Wizard of Oz and reimaginings of it that have tried to make things that should be fantastic more realistic and things that should be realistic like metaphors. Right, like the cowardly lion is just a regular lion. He doesn't talk. Or the scarecrow's not literally a scarecrow. Right, the tin man is some sort of robot where it's like, no... They're weird, different shit. Yeah. And I think the rust on the Tin Man is such a perfect example of like, what a weird thing to be incredibly detail-oriented about, but God, does it work. Yeah. That is the exact right thing to care about in that scene. Or like the fact that the Wicked Witch's guards have these very specific costumes that are complementary to the uniforms for the winged monkeys but are definitely not the same even the ways this movie narratively shortcuts things like i was thinking about the way that everybody in the wicked witch's palace is just like you killed her you win we're free now and it's just like what that's are we going to explain why they would no that's super weird Like, there are a lot more of you than there were of her. I know she has magic and stuff, but come on. And then the other thing that stood out to me, and this is just an incredibly small detail, but it really warmed my heart, is that when Oz is explaining how he ended up there, and he says that, you know, he was doing a balloon performance, but he wasn't able to get back down, and he floated away and ended up in Oz, and they all said that he was this great and powerful wizard, and he says... 
times being what they were, I took the job. Yeah. Oh, nice. Depression reference. I would never have gotten that at all. It was like, well, at least there's a job here, whereas in America right now, we have a Great Depression. So I guess I'll stay. Uh, I also love that. I think this is from the books, but I love that the wizard keeps referring to America as the land of E Pluribus Unum. Yes. Which is just such a great flim flam phrase, but also such a great like magic logic phrase at the same time. I think it probably sounds more impressive to the citizens of Oz. Right. Sort of like, yeah, I'm from the United States of America. I'm from the land of E Pluribus Unum. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I should we rate this movie? Because I love this movie. Ted! Ted! I was going to go all the way down to an eight, but you know what? You've convinced me. Why were you going to give it an eight? Um, I, you know what? I wasn't going to go all the way down to an eight. It was more, <laughs> I would have accepted you saying something as low as an eight. I was going to give it a nine before. I was going to say it wasn't literally a perfect movie, but it was very close. I, it's a perfect movie. It's a perfect movie. It's 10 out of 10. Also, like, I may have been just beaten down by all of the other movies that we've watched, but I was like, is this actually just the greatest movie ever made? I don't know, it's not. (laughs) But by comparison, my God. Yeah. And it totally holds up. It's got a fast clip. I mean, it has a modern pacing and it's, it's, it's just delightful. (laughs) Yeah. Should you watch this movie? If you have somehow not watched this movie, I don't know if you should turn off the podcast and immediately go watch this movie. You should do that. You should do what he just said. Okay, you should turn off this podcast and go watch this movie again. If you have somehow gone through your life without ever having seen Wizard of Oz, by God, go watch (laughs) Wizard of Oz. And yeah, this is coming out like late October-ish. That's a good time to see The Wizard of Oz again, I think. Yeah, it's a good Halloween thing. Yeah. There's a witch in it. Yeah, that counts. And also, there's an adorable dog who is smarter than everyone. God, Toto rules. (laughs) I love that how much I sound like I'm just really into the song Africa whenever I talk about this movie. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole different podcast. That's a horse of a different (laughs) color. So next week... We are watching Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. It's such a shame that has to follow up this movie. Because I feel like after any other of the 50 movies we just watched, you would be like 10 out of 10 immediately. And you are going to be more like, I don't know if we can give two 10s in a row. I have no compunctions. I will give two 10s in a row. All right. If it deserves a 10, it'll get a 10. What I would say is certainly the best Frank Capra film that we've no. Because, I don't know, because It Happened One Night is such a good movie, too. Shit. Susan, movies are good. Movies are good again. Mm, (laughs) Newsflash. I don't know. This may just be an aberration, but uh, we'll find out next week. (laughs) I don't mean for all time. I just mean as a medium. For a while, I was pretty down on him there. (laughs) I think I'm coming around on movies. All right, well, we'll see if we sustain that. That's fair. Next week, anyway. And until then... This was a movie. For sure. (laughs) Goodbye, everybody. Bye.
Chimney tops, that's where 